0: Welcome to our ninth Cows on the Planet podcast. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford and I'm from the University of Lethbridge. I have been a beef researcher since shortly after the massive herds of bison quit roaming the plains. My co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, a Principal Scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada also in Lethbridge. Our topic today is, should cattle be replaced with native species such as bison? And like every other podcast subject so far, I know that you've done some studies with bison, Tim. Anything that you are particularly looking forward to in our discussions today?
1: Well, thanks, Kim. Yeah, I actually had did some work with bison in the past. My previous supervisor always wanted to get bison on our research center, but upper management, we're always a little bit reluctant about that because of the potential of individuals to get injured in that and handling the bison. Uh, They were pretty worried about the liabilities that may be around with that. So we never actually ended up with bison at the research center. But I did do a study with bison where I was comparing the rumen microbes in cattle to the microbes that are present in bison. We hear about what an important keystone species bison are in grassland ecosystems and of course they were really important as well for the indigenous peoples when they were as a food source and so we were quite interested to know whether or not if the microbes in the rumen of bison differ from those in cattle and that's why bison do so well in grassland ecosystems. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what we're going to cover here today and see what Chris has to say about how bison can play a role in grassland ecosystems.
0: Our guest today is Chris Helzer, Director of Science of the Nature Conservancy of Nebraska. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Chris.
2: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: Well, we're really happy to have you here. So just to start off, Chris, can you please describe a few of the forks on the road that led you to your work with the Nature Conservancy? And what exactly do you do as a Director of Science?
2: Sure. I got an undergraduate degree and a master's degree in wildlife biology and landscape ecology here at the University of Nebraska. And I was really interested in grasslands early on and really wanted to focus on biodiversity issues and conservation issues. And I was attracted to grasslands, I think, in part because they're sort of an underdog, which seems crazy in a grassland state like Nebraska, but there really just aren't that many people that think about grassland conservation especially. Grasslands are seen either as a place to to graze cattle or just some place that's boring that you have to drive through to get to something interesting. And <laughs> I, I, I wanted to do a lot more about that. And, and
0: uh, here, here in Canada, we call that Saskatchewan. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: hey, I've I've been to Saskatchewan. They've got some great <laughs> spots. But anyway, so that's that's kind of what led me to grasslands, and then with the Nature Conservancy, I even while I was in graduate school, I was volunteering with the Conservancy whenever I could because I really liked what they were doing and I wanted to get to know them and learn from them. And then I got really fortunate right out of grad school to land a job as a land manager along the Central Platte River here in Nebraska and got to be in charge of 5,000 acres of land and was given probably more authority than I should have been given as somebody who was not even 25 years old at that point. But it was a fantastic opportunity to experiment and learn and I did a lot of restoration work as well as fire and grazing management, invasive species control. And then over time, I've I've kind of worked my way into more science and outreach work as well. So my current position as director of science, I supervise the land managers that the Nature Conservancy has at various locations here in Nebraska, and I help kind of give them advice and act as kind of a mentor or an advisor for them. And then I help them also collect data and just evaluate the work that they're doing and try to wrap up what we learn back into adapting that management and then also spend a lot of time talking about what we're learning to other people, trying to, you know, take what we learn on our sites and and help other people apply that to the places that they're managing grasslands.
0: Now, it all sounds cool. And I'll turn it over to Tim to start the incredible grilling <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, Chris, I'm I'm a big fan of bison, and I've enjoyed seeing them in our grasslands in Elk Island National Park. One almost ran me over, in fact, in Elk Island National Park while I was on a bicycle. And I think Elk Island National Park, if I recall, played a pretty important role in preservation of the species because I think some of the bison out of Yellowstone were transported there, and, and that herd was established in that manner. So, to start with, why is the Nature Conservancy interested in working with grazing animals like bison on their prairie sites? And you know, I think. Some people think that the plants would be better off if they weren't subject to grazing. Can you just comment on that a little bit as
2: well? Yeah, of course. To me, grasslands have three major forces that work on them that both define them as grasslands and, and you know keep them as grasslands, but also make sure that they're diverse and functional. And those three forces are really fire, grazing, and climate, mostly drought, but wet weather also. And the grazing part, I think, is especially interesting because grazers are selective in what they eat. So, fire burns everything, at least anything that's dry enough to burn. But cattle, bison, you know, sheep, goats, whatever they are, they're making a decision with every mouthful. And so, you can manipulate the way that they manipulate habitat in some really interesting ways and some really unique ways, I think, compared to the other things. And you know we can't, at this point, change the weather. So really it's fire and grazing that are the major tools that we have to manage grasslands. And I think one of the biggest things, at least in my part of the world, that grazing does for us is it, it helps reduce the dominance of grasses in an ecosystem where grass dominance can reduce the diversity of plants overall. And so from my perspective as someone who's interested in Pollinators and grassland birds and you know plant diversity for all the sort of re- ecological resilience reasons. It's not that I'm against grass in any way. Grasses are you know a huge important part of prairies, but they're not the only part of a plant community. And there are times where if grasses become too dominant, you lose the plant diversity that actually gives those those grasslands the resilience that that we need for ecology and you know bees and butterflies and things like that, but also that support the the agricultural industries.
1: So we've always heard what a keystone species bison are on those grassland ecosystems. And, you know, I think the beef cattle industry is wondering, well, can cattle, you know, be a replacement for bison in, in that keystone role? So is that possible? Or what would be the major similarities and differences in terms of forage selection between those two species
2: and their grazing behavior? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question, right? I mean, the answer in part is that cattle have already replaced bison as the keystone species in terms of grazing pressure. And there are some differences, but if you're purely looking at how we can manage grasslands for biodiversity, for habitat structure, things like that, cattle do a pretty good job. And I think the major reasons that cattle aren't doing exactly the same things that bison did historically is just that we manage cattle In particular ways for other purposes besides just sort of optimizing habitat heterogeneity or or plant diversity but if you look at them as species and the way that they interact with the environment they're pretty similar you know they both are primarily feeding on grasses they both pick up wildflowers or forbs or broadleaf plants kind of as a supplementary resource they'll pick them up they need to self-medicate for some reason or to you know to add to their diet in certain ways They have their favorites among both grasses and forbs, but in terms of diet selection, the studies who have tried to compare them side by side when both the cattle and bison are being managed in the same grazing system have found that they're very similar. And that's been my experience watching them on our sites too. The bigger differences are some of the behavioral differences in terms of how they use the larger landscape. So for example, cattle on a hot day, like to stand around in the water to get away from flies and to cool off a little bit. Bison don't generally do that. Bison aren't going to hang around in wet areas like cattle do. And cattle also like to seek out shade and hang around in trees if those are available. And bison tend not to do that either. They tend to maybe avoid trees, in fact, and like to be out in the open grassland a lot more. So those are a couple of smaller differences that, well, they're not smaller differences. They can be important differences, but they're something that on the cattle side can be mitigated to kind of iron out some of those differences and make them similar.
1: So if you had cattle and bison grazing adjacent pastures side by side, then you really wouldn't expect to see a big
2: change in the plant species within those two pastures over time? Not if you are... Using the same system, but if you're grazing the cattle in a rotational grazing system and the bison are in one large pasture Which is typically what a lot of researchers have looked at because those are two typical ways of managing those species Then you'll see differences, but but the differences are really due to the management approach rather than the species If you put them both in, you know If you had a comparable number of cattle and bison in those pastures and you let them just roam wherever they wanted to within large pastures and do what they wanted For the most part, I think you'd expect to see the same plant communities. And again, the differences would be like around wet areas, you might see some differences. And you might see some differences around the edges of trees where because just bison aren't going to camp out and hang out around those trees as much.
1: So it sounds like the fences that the Europeans built across the grasslands had quite an impact on those grazing behaviors of both species.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I've
0: always thought that cattle were more like the couch potatoes. Is that true? Where they just don't like to move as much or go up the steep hills or they just don't use all of the, like the different terrain maybe as well or won't go very far from water. They have to have water there or they just say if it's, if it's like X, X kilometers and I'm not sure what that distance is. If it's that far, cattle just are never going to go there where, Maybe bison are a little more ambitious and might. Some comments there.
2: Yeah, I think there's something to that. But I also think there's a lot of variation within both bison and cattle. I mean, I've worked with a lot of different cattle herds, and I certainly have seen differences in how much energy they have or how how much they're willing to move away from water. We have played around with patch burn grazing here in Nebraska with cattle where we have a large pasture and we burn a portion of it in the cattle will go focus their grazing on that portion. And sometimes we've had a burn patch that's, you know, almost two kilometers away from the water source and they'll still go all the way out there to find that burn patch and graze it down really hard and then trek all the way back to water. So it's not universally true that cattle are more lazy if that's the right word, but I think there are some differences in the way they they react to topography. But again, I think bison, we have a couple of 10,000 acre pastures in nebraska that we have bison in and we still have to put water you know scattered around those big pastures to make sure that they're using them and not just focusing all their grazing in one place so the differences are there i don't see them personally as major differences at least based on my experience
0: No, that's that's good to know i'll turn it over to tim
1: yeah, Chris, so what about some of the challenges with handling and, and working with bison? I know bison used to freely roam the range, and the ones I've seen are contained by a much more substantial fence than just a three-strand barbed wire fence. And I know like the handling system, some of those look like they could stop a tank. And I think trucking and processing a bison also looks to be more challenging than the practical solution developed by Indigenous people of using a local buffalo jump. So uh, what are what are some of the difficulties in that with handling bison from a practical perspective,
2: sure. Yeah, I mean that there are definitely some challenges. Actually, one that you didn't mention is, for the most part, bison herds—at least the ones that I'm familiar with—tend to be year-round grazing on one site. And in our case, with the Nature Conservancy, you know, we own the bison, and so we have them in a pasture year-round, which means they're grazing in the winter time as well as the summer time. And that's a lot different than cattle that come and go. At least for us, you know. We have cattle lessees that bring their cows in in the spring and take them back out in the fall. And so as a conservation organization, the obligation to, you know, keep track of bison, make sure they're still doing okay during the winter is the real one. Fortunately, they're pretty self-sufficient. There's not much we have to worry about with them, or we kind of just let them do whatever they want during the winter. But you're right, from an infrastructure standpoint, there are some big differences. We have, you know, we tend to have six wire fences instead of three or four wire fences. And a lot of those these days, people are moving toward a, an electrical fence that is a six wire fence that's you know six feet tall, seven feet tall, just to make sure that we're doing what we can to keep the bison in. And for the most part, as long as the bison have enough to eat, you know they tend to stay in, but if they want to go somewhere, even a six wire fence isn't gonna stop them. <laughs> Although I would argue that I've dealt with a lot of cattle that seem to have that same attitude if they're really excited about getting through a fence, cows can do the same thing, but bison are probably a little bit better at it. They're built a little bit differently for that. And then in terms of the handling facilities, we do annual roundups with our bison herds and those corrals are built, like you said, (laughs) very strong. And, uh, but even there, I mean, like the design of those, the, you know, maybe you build them up a little bit stronger, but a well-designed corral system for bison I don't think is that much different than a well-designed system for cattle. They both have the same kind of responses as far as I know in terms of you want to show them a place where they can go and they'll and they'll go that way. With bison, we work really hard on low stress management because bison, when they get angry at us or stressed in general, will lash out at each other. And I think they're a little bit better at lashing out at their comrades than maybe cattle would be and they can do a little bit more damage so i think it's smart to do low stress management with both cattle and bison but i think the consequences of it with bison are maybe a little higher
1: so when you turn bison out on pasture is it kind of analogous to the Ron Papale famous ronco showtime rotisserie and barbecue where you could just set it and forget it uh, with bison can you just turn them out
2: and forget them It's not quite that easy, but it definitely is a lot lower management than, than a lot of cattle herds. I mean, we don't do anything in terms of helping them calve out. For example, they're pretty self-sufficient with calving. Like I said, even over, over the winter, we rarely have to do anything in terms of supplementary feed here in Nebraska. So yeah, they're so well adapted to the grasslands that they're grazing on, I guess, that, that there's just not a lot of need for us to, to be very involved, but you know, with the infrastructure we just talked about fixing fence maintaining fence is a constant struggle make sure they have water is no different than it is with cattle or, or any other livestock so there's still the need to be out there checking on them and making sure they're doing okay
1: so one of the things you mentioned, Chris, I thought was really interesting was the difference in the behaviour then of bison versus cattle when it comes to water. Do you manage those water systems differently in terms of trying to assure water quality between bison and cattle? Or do you take any steps to try to to ensure that you've got clean drinking water in that for both types of species?
2: Yeah, for the most part, the herds that I work with, their water that they're drinking is coming out of tanks that's pumped out of the ground. And so the quality of water that they drink is less of an issue than, you know, affecting water quality for other species. And with cattle, we have to be more careful about the kinds of access that we give them to streams or ponds or wetlands. And normally if you're using some kind of a rotational system with cattle, it helps because you can rotate through pastures and you can allow, you know, areas along ponds to rest or, or streams to rest now and then. And periodic grazing is not going to be a big deal as long as you give them enough recovery. But it is really important, especially if you have a season long grazed pasture or pastures where the cattle are in there for a long time. You know, thinking about fencing out majority of a stream and allowing a few access points or figuring out how to provide some recovery time for those sites is important. Where with bison, it's really not something that you have to worry too much about because if they're using those to drink, they go drink and then they, they leave. They don't hang around and stomp around and poop around like cattle tend to do along those water sources.
0: I probably shouldn't admit this because this is cows on the planet and I'll probably lose all of my credibility. But in a previous life I was a sheep and goat specialist and sheep get a disease called malignant cataral fever. And for the sheep, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just like a bad cold, but I know that it can kill bison if they catch it. So to replace cattle with bison does that mean you have to kill all the sheep and goats and maybe some of the cattle guys would say yeah okay good kill those sheep and goats too but just wondering if that is the case and we also hear about brucellosis in bison populations uh, especially up like in our wood buffalo park i know there's been brucellosis problems there and brucellosis is a disease that can affect humans but uh, pretty well we've controlled it in cattle. So just um, a few comments on bison and disease, Chris.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, it's an area I don't know much about. Figuring that it might be a topic, I checked with some colleagues this week to see if there was anything really important that I needed to know. And, you know, my understanding, I guess, from them and others is that, and I'm going to start out by saying sheep and goats I know nothing about, so I won't even comment on sheep and goat diseases and what they might do or, or mean because I just don't know. Between cattle and bison, there are some diseases that they share and they can spread them back and forth between each other, but I think it's a two-way pathway. I, I don't know of anything that would be really different in terms of bison carrying diseases that cattle wouldn't carry and causing problems. Brucellosis is is certainly the one I hear the most about too, but... At least my understanding of the science is that there hasn't been a documented case of bison transmitting to cattle, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I don't know, but I think that it doesn't seem to me that it's an issue that is serious enough that it would be a deciding factor between whether you wanted to have bison in a landscape or not. You know, whenever you have livestock spread across the landscape, you've got disease transmission issues. I don't know that bison are going to be any worse than having cattle in that same place. But again, some of this is third hand information. It's not my expertise.
0: Well, thank you. I'll turn you back over to Tim.
2: So Chris, with bison, in terms of eating bison,
1: I've, I've usually only ever seen bison burgers or bison stew. Seldom have I seen a bison steak for sale. So maybe I just don't eat at fancy enough restaurants. But I know that bison tends to be lower in fat than beef. But why don't we see more bison
2: steaks in our grocery stores? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I've had bison steaks. I've had bison roasts. Bison roasts are really good. I don't know if that is something that is due to processing plants. And I mean, you mentioned earlier that it's, it's harder to find places to get processing of, of bison than it is for cattle. There just aren't very many places. And I think there's rules that dictate how you can work on those two animals in the same processing plant that make it really complicated. But from a taste, from a quality standpoint, I don't see any reason you wouldn't do it. So I don't. I guess I just don't know the answer.
1: I wonder if it's a marketing type of thing, you know, in terms of supply, in terms of the total amount of bison that are available relative to cattle and the relationships that can be set up, you know, with cattle and beef and and the marketing chains and that. And I think bison is probably more directly marketed to the consumer than, you know, a percentage of the population as compared to cattle.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know that Ted Turner has really worked hard on building up his own bison herds on property that he owns in the United States, and then also has his own restaurants. And he's developed his own kind of stream of bison from pasture to restaurant. And they certainly have steaks and roasts and and things as well as burgers. So it, it can be done. But yeah, I think you're probably right that it's just, it's a volume problem and we just don't have an infrastructure set up to deal with it.
0: One thing that we kind of stumbled into just innocently in a previous podcast, it was about biodiversity and grazing cattle. And that were the very strong feelings that some people had against grazing cattle on public lands within the United States. And that was our very first podcast hater (laughs) was after that episode that person seemed to believe that any cow grazing native range was going to cause irreparable damage to that landscape. And, like, just want your opinion on what's happening here. Is this just a battle more about access to the public lands? Like, people just don't want to bump into cattle when they're out hiking or whatever they're doing. I know it's been going on for a few years now, and... It even seems like scientists are taking some sides.
2: Yeah, it's a complicated issue as as most of them are. So public land grazing in the U.S. is happening mostly to the west of where I'm at. So it's not in my backyard. I know a little bit about it. I don't know a lot, but I see similar feelings from the public about grazing in the east as well. So I'm located in the in the Great Plains, in the center of the Great Plains. And I would say to the east of me, there's a lot more pro-fire, anti-grazing sentiments. And to the West of me, there's much more pro-grazing, anti-fire sentiments. And I'm in this sweet spot in the middle where both fire and grazing seem to be okay. (laughs) And I mean, of course, there's a lot of variation in all of that. But it's interesting. I think a lot of the people who are sort of against grazing on grasslands, whether it's public land or otherwise, some of that's just based on the fact that the grazing that they've seen looks bad right it's the the grazing that they're familiar with in the east for example a lot of the cattle pastures there are you know tame grass pastures and they're they're grazed very short a lot of them are probably overgrazed or at least aggressively grazed and so those sites don't look like the prairies that people are used to the prairies that they fell in love with and i think that some of that transfers out west where people in you know the eastern part of the US look out west or they go out west for vacations and they see these grasslands that look like the overgrazed pastures that they're used to seeing and they just assume that that's a bad thing and it's not necessarily that they're wrong i mean overgrazing is overgrazing and a lot of the public lands i think you could argue are probably grazed at a higher rate than they should be and there's a lot of reasons for that that date back to the way parks and and public lands were set up and uh, lease rates and all these sorts of things that are big issues, but the idea that grazing is automatically bad in those sites is also, I think, wrong. I think it's it's much more complicated than that. You know, there can be a role for grazing even in pretty arid grasslands, and again, it's one of the three major forces that make grasslands healthy. I think the key is it just gets really complicated to manage the way those cattle are grazed and. You know, you can have some of those issues we talked about with riparian areas in places, and it's more of a system, it's more of an approach problem than sort of the core issue of whether or not they should be there. In in my opinion.
0: Well, thank you. We'll hold you to that, and <laughs> ho- hope that you don't get new new haters too.
2: <laughs> I, I I can't imagine. I mean. I shouldn't say that. I was going to say, I don't think what I said was very controversial, but but I also know well, that there you, are people you never with know, very strong feelings that. about it. <laughs>
1: So, Chris, one thing we know is like the rumen microbes are pretty important for the digestion of forage by both bison and cattle. But one of the consequences of that is the production of methane as a greenhouse gas. You know, and I've seen papers published where they talked about there being, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 million bison present on the plains of North America pre-European contact and that they produced a significant amount of methane as well some that are not too far off of what the current cattle production population would produce so can you say anything about the differences between methane emissions from bison and cattle and you know with consideration for maybe the higher forage content that would
2: bison would typically have and and their slower growth rates i mean the quick answer is no i can't really but i what i think about though with that is what you've mentioned earlier which is that if we agree with the premise that grasslands are healthiest with grazers as part of that system, whether those grazers are bison or cattle, you're going to have methane production as a result. And so that's not a cop-out. That doesn't mean that we ignore opportunities to affect that methane production and try to find ways to reduce it. But my understanding with cattle and methane production is that you tend to get less methane with cattle production that relies on feedlots because the Again, those cows are around for a shorter period of time. It takes less time between you know birth and slaughter. Where if you're trying to finish them on grass, it takes a longer time. So every animal is out there longer, producing more methane during their lifetime. But again, that doesn't mean that we should optimize just feedlots, and that's the best way to go because that only addresses one issue. There's a lot of reasons that you know grass finishing beef is advantageous as opposed to feedlots. So it's. Mm-hmm. It's just a complicated issue and I think we need to start from the place that we need grazing animals even though they're going to be producing methane it's not a new addition of methane you know that the issue with with climate change is that has been that we've added sources of methane and carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases to a system where they weren't before this is an example of where that methane production has always been there on the great plains and in north america and it's now just being produced by a different set of animals than than we used to have, but it's probably fairly similar in terms of the total amount. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Chris.
0: Well, thanks Chris for filling us in on how cattle stack up compared to bison. It's been good talking to you and my dad thought for a while that we should have gone the whole bison route on the family farm, but we never took the plunge and it could have been the time that Our whole handling system collapsed while we were just trying to work with supposedly domesticated cattle. That might have been the the thing that prevented it. Tim, we've heard about the differences and similarities among bison and cattle as grazing animals. Some of the benefits of bison and that they're less likely to degrade water sources than cattle, but that they require some championship caliber fencing to contain and a few other concerns. What are your take home points from what Chris had to say?
1: Yeah, I think Chris had some good points, like the water that you mentioned. I think that's a key one in terms of behavioral differences between bison and cattle. It sounds like from a forage consumption perspective, they're pretty similar in terms of their impact on grassland ecosystems. The biggest difference would be how bison are managed, which are typically free range relative to cattle, which can be managed through a rotational grazing system. Of course, the implementation of rotational grazing systems depends as well on the environment, because you need the grass to grow within each rotation. If it's such a dry environment that it doesn't regrow after the first grazing cycle, then it doesn't really lend itself to rotational grazing either. And so I think it's interesting too that it appears that either could be a keystone species. And, and I think the two species actually complement each other where they're being employed in grassland ecosystems.
0: Thank you everyone for listening. If you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts please visit our facebook page cows on the planet we can also be reached by instagram at cows on the planet or twitter at planet underscore cows
1: our next podcast will be totally non-controversial how difficult is it for a vegan versus a beef eater to meet their protein requirements and it'll feature dr benjamin borer of ohio state university
0: we also need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and mostly prevents me from sounding like a babbling idiot. Allison McNaughton and Uvi Abascaria are working on podcast distribution and we'll have the added challenge this time of linking this podcast to Chris's social media. Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We're just looking for the honest opinion of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing.